I'll just use the portable mic. I also realized I just came back and the song, and I looked at my mic, and it was still on from the announcements. So if you guys online heard me in the copy room yelling at the copier, you muted it? You probably would see it in the comment section. Lars, quit yelling at. That's not appropriate language, Lars. Yeah. I saw that, and I was like, oh, no. But this is one of those days. Remember, I was the one last week who sat up here and said, we do it serious, but we don't take it too seriously. This is a test of that. Well, again, welcome here this morning, everyone. And again, welcome, everyone, online. As we're worshiping here in our church fellowship hall for the next three, four or so weeks while we get the construction done. Uh, and I decided for today uh, not to use the screens for these weeks, trying to manage the technical stuff of the live stream I thought was enough, trying to add a projector. Uh, so uh, everything is in your current bulletin. You should have one with the squiggly lines. That's how you know you have the right one. Uh, and so because there is not screens, I have, I made up all these beautiful slides. If you're at home, you will see those beautiful slides. If you're here, they're in the bulletin. See, you get, yeah, and you have a place, and you can put your notes over on the other side if you're a note taker, I guess. But if you want to follow along with just any references or bullet points I make, that's where you will find them. Uh, so, today is the second in my little three-part mini-series that I'm doing on the mission statement of our church, on our new mission statement. So, if you can't remember it, there it is. Uh, love God, open our hearts and minds, live graciously toward all. So you can see again, we're really leaning into this idea of grace. We're leaning into this idea of God's unconditional love, being and living that. Uh, and today we're going to do a little bit on the second part. Open our hearts and minds. And the full sentence reads, open our hearts and minds through diverse individual and group connections to guide us on the path God calls us to follow. The biggest debate on this was whether it should be open our hearts or just open hearts. And there were really good arguments on both sides that I heard, but we ended up going with open our hearts. We didn't want to sound a little aggressive, like we're going to open your heart and mind like, and I'm not against opening hearts and minds. I just didn't want that sort of, I don't know, that feeling like we are going to open your mind. Like we're the open and you're the closed. I don't know. It just, I just kind of went back and forth on it. But um, so we decided we're going to open our hearts and minds. We're going to hold ourselves accountable to following Jesus, to being the kind of community that is safe and welcoming for people to be a part of. And this is what Jesus commanded. You know, Jesus keeps saying, follow my commands. And his commands are actually not that many. They're not easy, but there's not many of them, right? John 13, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
you can't reach people with a gospel of love if you are not loving. When people see that you are loving, they will know you are a follower of Jesus. But in order to be loving, you have to be open. You cannot have love without openness. That's the nature of love. You have to put yourself out there for someone. You have to risk opening yourself up to someone. And yes, that's putting you at risk of being betrayed, of being hurt, of being burned. But remember, that's what Jesus did. And you have to do that if you want a relationship that is more than just right on the surface. So, but what does openness require? What does openness require? First, it's vulnerability. If you're protected, if you're hiding things, if you're really guarded, you can't love, not as well. And it's not easy to open up. I think most of us are kind of suspicious these days. We tend to lack trust. Maybe we didn't grow up in great communities or great families. I think most of us have been burned by someone before. And what we tend to do when we're burned is we tend to put our guard up, but we tend to make the next person pay for what the previous person did. So if the previous one, if the previous one was unfaithful and we couldn't trust them, the next one we're going to say, well, okay, I'm going to take this really slow. I'm not going to talk till they talk. I'm not going to open up till they open up. Right? I have to take it slow because I got trust issues. And what you're really saying is, I'm going to stay guarded and protected and not let my guard down until you do it first. Sort of, there must be this sort of reciprocity stuff. And when I think about what that, what, what that ends up being is if each side's a little guarded and waiting for the other to go first, it's a little bit like one of those, um, you know, sta armed standoffs with a John Leguizamo, you know, and the, and the guns tilted sideways and everybody's waiting to see if the other one is going to be the one who puts it down, the gun down first, right? And everybody just sits there waiting until their arms give way. That's not love. Love means you're going to have to be the one to lower your guard first. Maybe not all the way, but the loving response is to put your defenses down, to be the one who takes that initiative so the other person knows that you're serious about this, that you're willing to take that risk. Will you get burned sometimes? Absolutely. But nothing opened is nothing gained. This matters. I think this matters to us as a church when you realize how many people in our world have been burned by something or someone or a religion or a church or a group they've been a part of. And there's, there's a lot of burned people in our world. And, and so I think in general we're kind of hesitant, want to be a part of things, to join things, to make a commitment to something. And so we kind of quietly probe. That's part of what online has done. Right? We can go and check out a church online and find out if the pastor is crazy. We can go back through the sermon catalog. And I don't blame anyone for doing that. Right? I mean, you want to have a sense of, is, is this kind of a place I want to be a part of? You know? To feel it out. I mean, it's kind of what we do. Apparently, some people on dates, it's a standard thing to just Google the other person. Right? You Google them before you go out. 
I was before Googling, <laughs> right? But, you know, a lot of people are scared. And they're scared of closed-mindedness. They're scared of getting burned. What, does, what else does openness require? Openness requires the possibility of being transformed, changed by the other person. It, you know, you have to really say, is it really openness if you're close to anything the other person has to say? If it's a one-way street, you know? Or if it's, where, you know, where, where, where you do all the, uh, the talking and they don't get a word in. Or are you one of those people that's kind of clever where you pretend to be open-minded to get them to open, to find out what their weaknesses are? That's what con artists do, right? You get done with the conversation and you realize, wow, I don't actually know anything about this person. And they know everything about me. And the whole time, it's like, I thought this person was a really good listener. But it was one way. Why was it one way? Because they're trying to probe my weaknesses. Well, that's not love. You can't be open-minded if you're not open to being changed. If you're not open to the other person affecting you in some way. If you're worried that you can't leave your defenses behind because it might change you. Well, yeah, it does. What else does you have to do? You also have to be humble. Openness takes some humility. If you have all the answers, then you think it can go real quick from I have all the answers to I'm better than everybody else. Right? What do we call those people? Know-it-alls. And who loves a know-it-all? Nobody does. Right? But when you feel like, hey, I, I know what's there to discuss. I already figured it out. I already know it's wrong. I already tried it. I already been there. I already done that. It doesn't work. It's not right. Why, why should I even listen to dumb ideas? We already have the answer. Well, what if you're the one who has the dumb idea? Well, guess you don't want me around, huh? When you approach someone in a loving way, you have to acknowledge that there's value in what they say and that they can add insight, wisdom to your life. And that takes a position of some humility. It's admitting that you have limits. It's admitting that somebody can help you be better and not approaching people as inferiors. It's why I think fundamentalism has such a hard time with science because Scientists are so not certain about a lot. If, if you listen to scientists talk, you know, you'll get lots of, well, we think it is a possibility that there are so many stars there. And the, the equations indicate there might be more black holes. And we think there's a good probability that, and you're like, my gosh, do you guys not have any answers? And the, the answer is, well, their answers are only as good as their data. And so they always kind of hedge a little bit. And, and they're hedging because that's how science works. You just get the best answer you have with the data you have. But you're always revising. You're always changing it. And if you're the kind of person that's kind of nervous and wants a clear answer, it's going to look like scientists don't know what they're talking about. But the truth is they know so much more than me. It blows my mind. But they also know what they don't know. To be a good scientist means you have to have a lot of humility. There's a lot of I don't know and I could be wrong. But if, and so the fundamentalist answer is to come in and say, well, I know it's kind of unnerving, 
to think that there's all this, that we don't really know stuff, that everything's always in flux, that we're always changing, so we're just going to give hard answers. Here's the truth, here's the answer, this is the way, boom, 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 done. And then you can go, ah, oh, I don't have to worry anymore. Now I know. But if, if the posture, but if you're going to be somebody that's open, you have to have a posture of that's always open to more learning and always open at least to the possibility that I might need to revise my view. And that's one of the things that we in the ELCA try to do as a denomination. We have revised our policies on things. We have changed some positions, not everything. We have beliefs we haven't changed. If you want to sit down and study the formula of Concord someday, I guarantee you it will cure your insomnia, but we haven't changed it. But that's, but that's what we do. And it opens us up to a criticism that you're wishy-washy, you're flip-flopping, you're changing with the culture, you're just going with the trends, right? I, somebody online made a comment. They're like, you really think Martin Luther would approve of your social statement? I'm like, no, he wouldn't. And there's a lot of things Martin Luther wouldn't approve of, you know, like women having jobs outside the house. But, you know, he's not God. You, and, but you try to think about that and sort of the, that this person thought that, like, that was the ringer, that they got me on that one. Oh, you guys are just changing with the culture. And, and, and it reminded me of kind of, when I was watching a documentary, we're going to go back like, what? Ooh, we're going to go back a ways. 26, 06 or 07. I was watching this documentary. And they're in this mega church in Colorado. They're in this mega church, and, the, and it's just absolutely jammed full of people. I don't know how many thousand people were in the room. They had a light show. Holy mackerel. Lin-Manuel Miranda would love a light show like this. It was so good. And the pastor gets up, and he's confident, and he sits there and he says, we don't need an assembly to determine what our view on sexuality is. We have the Bible. And he holds it up. We have the Bible. And everyone cheers. We know what's wrong because the Bible says. After the documentary came out, they discovered this particular preacher was going up to Denver up to twice a week to do exactly what he said was wrong in the Bible. And so you could see people outside the church going, oh, boy, you, you were quite certain of that, weren't you? And, uh, and realizing that a certain degree of just humility would have probably, he probably wouldn't have even gotten outed. The guy who outed him said, look, I know lots of people like this who are covert, but when you go on TV to condemn what you do, uh, I think we got a problem there. But it's that kind of hypocrisy, of course, that turns people off. A good degree of humility that says, look, I might be wrong. I might have to revise. He built his empire on certainty. His own view had changed. He couldn't go back. How many people would be left in the stands if he said, you know, I got to tell you guys something. I know last week I told you that this was wrong and a sin, but it's, I'm actually one of them too. Poof. Big building for sale, right? But that's what happens. 
So I think to be loving, a certain degree of humility and openness is good. Doesn't mean you jump on every bandwagon, but you don't close yourself off to it automatically. And so that's part of what we wanted to do, to hold ourselves accountable to being humble and open. But openness also brings some real benefits. There's things that it requires, and there's things that openness achieves. So what does openness achieve? Relationships. When you're open to others, you can have authentic relationships. You get the benefits of love and connection that come with that. And loving relationships can convey the love of Jesus as good as anything I can say up here. If people come in and they experience loving people and they experience a loving community, that will do way better than any testimony that I give. What else is there? There's growth, personal growth, growth in learning about other people's struggles, about their lives, about their pains and joys, their insights. We grow in experience. We go through those aha moments when you, know, you can tell that you've made a breakthrough on something. What else do we get? We get more happiness and less anxiety. When you live your life from a perspective that's kind of guarded, that sees things as threats, I think you can real quickly become a grumpy person. I've said this before, I know I have, that if you look at the world as full of things and people out to get you, then every new thing is a threat, every possibility is a danger, every change has something, an unintended consequence. You've got to be withdrawn and guarded, and the more dangerous it is, the world is, the more serious you have to get. And so then that's, that's when I start hearing, Pastor, this is serious stuff. This is not time for joking. When I was in seminary, once, uh, once uh, in your time, you get to preach uh, in chapel. I always thought that was odd, right? Four years, you get one morning chapel. But I got my morning chapel. I got up there and I decided to talk about my text that was about the cross and being chosen. And so I was talking about how being chosen isn't always a good thing. Sometimes when you get chosen, people get jealous. And they take out the chosen one. And so I stood there, and I stood there in front of all the hallowed professors and colleagues. And I stood up there and I said, I could just picture Jesus standing there. He's got the nails in him, and he's looking out going, Hey, God, I'm the chosen one. Yippee skippy. I was told by other classmates in no uncertain terms, yippee skippy is not too flippant for the cross. And I was like, wow. I mean, what do you think he said? Why have you forsaken me? I mean, that, would that, that, that's the real words. That was what I thought was more harsh. Anyways, that's when I get thee, pastor, this is serious. This is no time for joking. When you start getting that, I start going, ah, this is someone who's really worried, who's feeling danger or threat. And uh, again, when you start feeling threatened, then you start wondering about who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. Your mindset starts to fill your head. And I, I, I think you're just not as happy. Although it's a good way to fill stadiums 
remind, being the one that assures people when they're anxious, but I would rather go down the path that I think is a little bit more happy, more open-minded, more fun-loving, more able to make a joke about yourself when you screw up. I mean, when you go, go to a wedding, who has the most fun out on the dance floor? Is it the person who's really self-conscious and worried about everyone judging their moves? You know? Or is it that your aunt or uncle who's had a couple too many mimosas doesn't care what anyone says and is just up there going full blast till the whole room's going, go uncle, go uncle, go uncle. And the uncle's up there and all the millennials have their phones out and they're going to put it on TikTok. Hashtag drunk uncle, hashtag wedding memes. Hashtag I don't care what you think about me. But I guarantee you, who's going to have more fun at that? The person who doesn't care what everyone thinks and isn't worried about it. Isn't that kind of what having fun is? But you got to let your guard down. If you don't let your guard down, you can't have fun. If you're in a place, a community, where people don't have a guard up, it's happier. It's happier. It's more fun. There's less drama because when, when somebody says something and it rubs you the wrong way, you can blow it off or talk it through instead of going, <gasps> I want to be that kind of community. Not necessarily one where everybody's, you know, drunk dancing, but one where we don't care if we dance in front of other people and, and, and worry, obsess about what everyone thinks. So try to put that into your mission statement. All right, we added a little bit about how we could do that, that mission statement. We'll look at that again. What does it say? Open our hearts and minds through diverse individual and group connections to guide us on the path God calls us to follow. So we're going to seek out, seek out connections with others. But the spiritual path is not always a solitary one. I know that's kind of the image we have. And I think we don't get enough solitary prayer these days, but most of us are not the kind of monks who are going to go and find a cave in the mountains and sit there for three years till we have emptied ourselves and embraced pure non-being. Most of us, are gonna, our spiritual path is going to involve sitting at the bedside of your member who's got cancer or hanging out with your friend in their troubled times or having the barbecue with the people you met and asking them how their week is and listening to their problems about God and God's going to open things to you and show you a path in those moments that's going to be as strong as any, any insight you'll get in the cave. God calls us on a spiritual path that guides us through people. The path to enlightenment is not always paved with nothingness but with people from different walks of life. And so when you go on that spiritual path, it's a road, and that's what it is. It's a road, it's a journey. You don't always know where it's going to end. You don't know who you might run into. It might come with troubles, but you open yourself to it, and you go down it. And when you do that, you are happier and more loving and more connected to God. Amen. <laughs>